Price a nickel. Wow. A little preview on our metal section. For a pound of nickel, it is $21.87, up from $13.52, and only a month ago, it was at $10.75. So this isn't a real-time quote. This is a once-a-week quote. So don't necessarily go and buy and sell your nickel based on what you're hearing from me. But it is a uh, a weekly update here. And yeah, wow. So, you know, everything continues to unfold. Ukraine and Russia take center stage. And so I brought on George McLeod, who is our favorite geopolitical guy, to help me out, to help me understand what is going on here. Because I can have all my opinions in the world, but I'm not really different from anybody else and any other person you're going to hear on the streets' opinions, whereas George McLeod is a Southeast Asia specialist, and he has worked in the region for 12 years. He served as PwC's regional corporate intelligence lead, where he oversaw investigation and political risk assessment. And I don't remember it, but he was telling me how on our last podcast in August— August of 2021, I thought it was a year ago, but I guess it was only in August that he was already mentioning Ukraine back then, which is pretty impressive. So he seems like the right guy. It was very, very interesting discussion. So I'm very excited to present that to you. And back to this nickel thing. I mean, I don't know if you saw that story about the LME suspending nickel trading and actually reversing some people's trades. So, I mean, you can see things are starting to kind of fray at the edges a little bit here. There is a little bit of destabilization, you know, not to be overdramatic, but I was thinking to myself, you know, is this what 1938 felt like? No. And I just keep hoping that this news stays on the screen. You know, that's all I think we can all ever hope is that the news is just some crazy novel that exists on our computer screens that really isn't going to affect us. but. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of people thought in Ukraine. I was telling you about my Ukrainian artist friend who barely got out by hours on before they uh, stopped men between 20 and 60 from leaving the country. And I asked him, I was like, what was it like? He's like, nobody thought it would happen. You know, again, it's like they thought the news would stay on their computer screens. And unfortunately, that is not the case. The news is real. So not to jump all over the place here. So we have a very interesting discussion on Ukraine. We're going to look at this LME story and we're just going to dissect it a little bit and form our judgments in the news section. And, you know, looking at all the other metal prices, they've actually kind of relaxed a little bit, surprisingly. But nickel does stand out. So we'll see if it's the outlier. Maybe it just has to do with this crazy story on the LME and this huge short position that the LME was covering for this guy. Uh, who was making a huge gamble. And if he had won that gamble, I assume they would have let him keep the money. But since he lost the gamble, they halted trading. But we'll take a closer look. Other than that, I mean, I think another standout here is the bond market, which if we turn to bonds, yeah, at 2.121. So breaking that 2% level. And I think I was listening to an interview with Bill Gross, the Bond King or former Bond King. I don't know if they still call him the Bond King, formerly of PIMCO. I think he's at Janus now if he hasn't moved. And he was drawing a line in the sand at 2.1%. 
as a kind of reversal of the trend in bonds. That that was a really a line in the sand for him, and we have broken that. So I guess you could always call it a false breakout of sorts, I guess, on the yields rising, but it's definitely something you want to keep your eye on here, the U.S. 10-year bond. Other than that, I mean, gold back below $2,000, a lot of gold people are frustrated with that, but you know, gold looks pretty strong. So put it this way, if I'm in gold, I'm not panicking. Let's put it that way. I would feel pretty comfortable. I mean, oil, here's another interesting thing. West Texas is below $100. Remember the crypto guy I was telling you about last week who was like, oh, watch out for the parabolas. We know how this ends. Well, crypto guy was right. His assessment of the oil markets was pretty good. Maybe he got lucky, but it was pretty good. Brent crude, $101. But I mean, again, down 5.6% today. So interesting times. I mean, and as far as this whole conflict, we're going to go in depth in this interview with George McLeod. However, before we wrap this up, I mean, this COVID thing, COVID has not disappeared. And in fact, they're shutting down Shenzhen in China. I think China's biggest tech hub. And I think they're continuing their zero COVID policies. I haven't read super deep on this. Yeah, so Chinese tech took a big hit earlier in the week. So, I mean, COVID, and here in Germany, I think they had a record day in the last few days. We were all kind of content to forget about COVID, but as they say, you know, COVID hasn't forgotten about us. The volatility that surrounds us feels historic, doesn't it? And so hopefully with our news coverage here of what's going on in commodity markets, which are center stage, and our metal price tracking, and our awesome interviews with people like George McLeod and George Salamis last week. And George McLeod was telling me before the interview, he's like, that interview with George Salamis was very interesting. And George Salamis is absolutely right. And maybe we'll just end it on that. Like, I hope the politicians are getting the message here that 10 years of permitting is too long in this environment. Things have changed. For anybody that's listening that has an ear, or if you are a policymaker, it's not a time to wax philosophical. It's time for action. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have this nickel story, which was getting a lot of press, a lot of people not happy about it. We have a story by Bloomberg News via mining.com. Nickel trade falls silent in throwback to LME's darkest days. And this is from March 9th. So this is from a few days ago. For nearly a century and a half, with only a handful of interruptions, the London Metal Exchange has been the place where global prices are set for industrial metals from aluminum to zinc. At 8.15 a.m. on Tuesday morning, that stopped. The LME suspended trading in nickel, used to make stainless steel and electric vehicle batteries after prices spiked as much as 250% in two sessions. More shocking for many in the market, the exchange later announced it would cancel all trades that took place in the hours before the halt. Now, just a quick reminder, this is Bloomberg on mining.com. So this isn't some 
you know, radical editorial here that someone's writing or some crazy commentary. This is like Newswire type stuff from Bloomberg. The LME was moving to restore order in a market gripped by a classic short squeeze driven by a panicky move by the world's largest nickel producer, Qingjian Holding Group, and its brokers to close some of the largest short positions it had built up over months. Resolving the situation around Qingjian and its brokers will be crucial to restoring calm. If the Chinese group can pay the margin calls from its brokers or otherwise find a way to close out its positions, the market may be able to reopen in an orderly manner. Xinjiang has now secured a package of loans from local and international banks to help it meet the wave of margin calls, Bloomberg reported on Wednesday. So this is last week. This basically happened during last week's show. The LME said, without naming market participants, that it was looking at a mechanism to reduce the short positions in the market for a restart, but many brokers criticized the decision to first allow the market to open Tuesday and then roll back the deals that were done. And we have a quote from Michael Marlowe, director at Hythe Bay Metals. Shambolic, shameful, scandalous, calamitous, ruinous, or pick any word of your choosing. Today has been a shattering blow to all that love the LME and all those that use it to conduct their daily business. LME Chief Executive Officer Matt Chamberlain defended the decision, saying that some brokers would have struggled if the nickel trades had stood. Quote, it would have been extremely difficult for some of our market participants to continue their activity. End quote, Chamberlain said in an interview with Bloomberg TV. Quote, the ability of the financial system to get that money to the members in London and then into the exchange, I think, would have been significantly stressed. End quote. For brokers on the LME, one of the few remaining places in the world where traders still gather in an open outcry pit to bark orders at one another, Tuesday's drama was a throwback to the exchange's darkest days. The last time the LME suspended trading in one of its contracts was during the 1985 tin crisis, when an international producer's cartel collapsed after it could no longer prop up the tin price. That crisis was a harrowing experience that changed the shape of the market. Many historic brokers were forced out of business from the losses, and according to LME lore, the stress from the crisis shortened a number of lives. We have another comment here. Alex Gurko, founder of XTX Markets, a leading electronic market maker on the bourse, said on Twitter, quote, you can't just do what the LME did. In a subsequently deleted tweet, he said it was, quote, the end of the market, end quote. So as I, we discussed in the interview coming up with George McLeod, it's a little troubling what's going on in the West, and it's kind of a slippery slope. Like we see it with, say, the Russian foreign reserves that were cut off from them. And of course, we can say there's a moral reason. We can easily justify it. And hey, I'm not saying I'm against it, but I do think we need to think about this. Because this violates property rights, which is arguably at the core of Western economic philosophy, liberal, you know, whatever you would call that, classic liberalism, I don't know. But what I do know is property rights are at the core. And here we are again, two weeks later, getting in the way of a trade that went bad for someone. And okay, well, and again, the reasoning is probably good, like, oh, we could have created a liquidity crisis for all we know, but are we a, you know, it's like a nation or a culture of laws or not? Because once you start bending rules for convenience, 
again, this is a very slippery slope. And you might like the people that are bending the rules right now, but what about in 10 years? Are you still going to like the people who are bending the rules? So very troubling is all I like. And I see it within the context of these sanctions as well. And again, I'm not against, you know, really tough sanctions. I understand. And if maybe I would have made the same decision, but I'm just a little concerned that we're bending the rules, bending the law, saying contracts don't matter for, you know, short-term convenience. It's a little troubling. Moving on, we go to Guinea and Guinea Junta halts Rio Tinto's Samandu project. And this was actually a pretty big story because Rio Tinto had just been negotiating with Guinea, the ruling junta there, recently. I remember the story. It wasn't that long ago. And now the government is basically saying, game over. Let's take a closer look. Guinea Junta halts Rio Tinto's Samandu project. And it says here, Guinea's ruling junta has ordered a full halt of Rio Tinto's vast Samandu iron ore project in the country's southeast with interim president Mamadi Dumbuya, I even remember that name, saying it is not clear how the mine will preserve national interests. The current government, which took power in a military coup in September, said in a statement that Dumbuya had not seen any progress in that direction, despite having discussed the matter with Rio's boss, Jacob Stausholm, in December. And a government spokesman, Usmana Gaual Diallo, said in a statement, quote, Colonel Dumbuya therefore ordered the cessation of all activity on the ground pending the answers to questions posed to various actors and the clarification of the operational mode by which the interests of Guinea will be preserved. Now, remember George Salamis last week, and he went to Florida to the big BMO conference, and he said, have we learned nothing? I'm hearing all these people are off making deals in what he was calling second and third tier jurisdictions. And he's saying, have we learned nothing? And then you see what's happening here. So I didn't ask for his definition of second and third tier, but I think generally, if we're generous about our interpretation, we could probably say that's a situation here, places where the rule of law is not respected. This is why it's so profound what happened with these two cases that we were just discussing. It's the rule of law. And again, like I'm not going to editorialize here. I will editorialize briefly. I'm concerned that it's our lack of history, our lack of knowledge of history that got us into this mess to begin with, and we continue to make mistakes. That's the concerning thing, and we're seeing it with us not respecting the rule of law or even mentioning it in these cases and the importance of it. Continuing on, Samandu, owned by Rio Tinto and Chinese-backed consortium, spent years in limbo because of disputes over ownership rights at the expense of transporting ore to the coast. Rio Tinto said on Friday it was not making any public comment on Guinea's move at this stage, probably a wise decision. The world's second largest miner owns about 45% of Samandu's Block 3 and 4, while Aluminum Corp of China holds 40% and Guinea's government the remaining 15%. Blocks 1 and 2 are controlled by China-backed SMB-winning consortium. And we have a comment from senior Africa analyst Eric Humphrey-Smith. Quote, it's a bold move by Dumbuya, and it may yet come back to bite him. This is the culmination of several months of rumblings that now have risen to the surface and boiled over. So we see, like, and this is a major project 
here at 2 billion tons in iron ore reserves and some of the highest grades in the industry. Smandu is one of the most easily exploitable iron ore deposits outside of Australia's Pilbara region and Brazil. Now, if you go back to the previous George McLeod episode, he talks about the politicization of resources, and you're starting to see that. Like, It does really feel like we're moving into a little bit of a new era here, that there are some things that won't be wound back. You know, all this cancellation, and you just wonder how this is all going to be rolled back. So anyways, so more concerning stories. Now, another Rio Tinto story, and this is also related to this war. Rio Tinto cuts ties with Russian businesses over Ukraine war, also by Cecilia Jamazmi. And it says here, Rio Tinto has become the first major mining company to announce it was cutting all ties with Russian businesses, joining a massive exodus of Western companies since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. So this is from March 10th, so five days ago. The world's second largest miner, which operates aluminum refineries in Russia's east together with aluminum producer Rusal International, has said it wanted to keep its relationships with local businesses steady. This, as the company was trying to avoid diesel supply issues at its giant Oyu Tolgoi copper gold mine next door in Mongolia. On Thursday, however, the company said in an emailed statement that, quote, it was in the process of terminating all commercial relationships it has with any Russian business. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I heard since then that Putin has said that he will seize any assets, any Western companies that are leaving the country right now, that their assets will be seized. If I'm not mistaken, that is what I heard. So I think this came out before that, because if you're a mining company, it does change the equation if you're leaving. And it's like, and you know what? You're getting nothing for it. And now again, like there are major moral issues, but you just see how hard this is for like, I mean, how long have they been working on this mine? How, you know, people put their heart and soul into this stuff. They have nothing to do with anything. So continuing on, the miner not only is reviewing its 80-20 joint venture with Roussel and Queensland Alumina, which runs a refinery in the Australian Northeast state, it also plans to stop supplying bauxite and sourcing alumina for Roussel's Ankenish refinery in Ireland. That's a key supplier to Europe's aluminum industry. So more havoc. So you can read that on northernminer.com. And one more story here, also to do with this war. Sanctioned Russian nickel could slow global EV adoption, according to a report, and this is by Henry Lazenby. Sanctioning Russian nickel will slow the adoption of electric vehicles and hinder the decarbonization of Western economies. According to a new report from Global Data, such actions will simply mean Western countries will be more reliant on Russian oil and gas for longer, according to the analysts. And they also say Russia was the third largest nickel producer in 2021 producing over 200,000 tons. As nickel is used in the production of EV batteries, any sanctions placed on Russian nickel will cause EV manufacturing prices to increase further, threatening adoption and decarbonization. And we have a quote, geopolitical issues such as the Russia-Ukraine situation disturbed the fine balance of battery metal supply chains. A skyrocketing nickel price would have major repercussions on countries' climate ambitions worldwide and will ultimately hamper the adoption of EVs said the group's thematic research team analyst, Daniel Clark, in a press statement. And he continued, Now is a critical time for EV adoption as advanced economies aim to accelerate decarbonization. However, the extra costs will be felt somewhere, either hitting automakers' profits or being passed on to customers. 
Now, I just saw a story on CNBC that Tesla is raising the price of their cars. So here you go. I mean, it's all fitting together, all the puzzle pieces of this story. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on March 15th, gold is trading at $1,930.32 per ounce. That is $79 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $24.80 per ounce. That is $1.19 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,027.21 per ounce. That is $118 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,415.24 per ounce. So that is $533 lower than last week. Well, remember the interview with Jeffrey Christian. It's not a very liquid market. So that's why you see such volatility in palladium, at least according to Jeffrey Christian. Now, turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.60 per pound. That is 15 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is trading at $1.57 per pound. That is 18 cents lower than last week. Lead is trading 4 cents lower at $1.07 per pound. Nickel is trading at $21.87. That is $8.35 higher than last week. $8.35 higher than last week. Tin is trading at $19.97 per pound. That is $1.50 lower than last week. And cobalt is trading at $37.04 per pound. That is $2.90 higher and maybe the highest price we've seen for cobalt since we've been tracking this. It is. So very interesting there. And zinc is trading at $1.74 per pound. That is nine cents lower than last week. So what do we see? I mean, obviously nickel is the standout and also cobalt is the standout. Precious metals and basically the rest of the industrial metals take a breather, but at increasingly elevated prices. So, you know, it's almost a a healthy pullback is how I'd see this. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have George McLeod, Managing Partner at Access Mining, and he's a specialist in resources and geopolitics. We are welcoming him back. And in this interview, I mean, it's not going to put you at rest, this interview. It's not going to relax you, unfortunately, and I wish it would, but it is fascinating and it's important information. So with that, here's George McLeod, Managing Partner of Access Mining on the Northern Miner Podcast. Joining us today, I'm very happy to welcome back George McLeod, Managing Partner at Access Mining, and he is a specialist in resources and geopolitics. George, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. Certainly a lot of change since we last spoke in uh, August. 
Yeah, your name crossed my email there, and I was very excited to see that because I think you're probably one of the perfect people to talk to. As you were saying, that you, you may have even mentioned Ukraine in our last interview. I didn't go back and listen to it, but it, it wouldn't shock me. So anyway, so I'm happy to have you here. And as we look at this you know, situation, the news dominated by Ukraine and Russia in the last three weeks, commodities. I mean, this is all right in your bailiwick here, geopolitics. What are we not thinking about? What are we not talking about from your perspective as we see the story unfold on our computer screens? I think that the the view that we're seeing in the news and from Western policymakers does contrast with what is actually unfolding on the ground. It tends to be portrayed as a, you know, a folly on the part of Putin where, where this the invasion has slowed to a halt, that Russia is being crippled by Western sanctions. I, I think that the opposite is actually occurring. I, I mean, I, I did, as you say, I, I did actually bring up the Ukraine issue back when we spoke before and as well at the Roundup conference where I, I said at the time that uh, it was expected that that Russia would go into eastern Ukraine in January or February. So I was a couple of weeks off, but that did actually take place, unfortunately. But in terms of uh, what we're missing, uh, despite claims by the Western media of it, of it being a stalled invasion, I mean, we've, we've seen Russia advance actually quite quickly. It's already on the outskirts of the capital, Kiev. What I'm hearing is that the expectation is that is that Kiev could actually fall within days or weeks. There's already preparations underway for a government in exile in Poland, uh, which further supports what I was saying about the speed uh, of the Russian invasion. The Russian troops are already uh, on the border of Poland, which will cut off the Ukraine's supplies to many foreign weapons and foreign support and foreign volunteers. And after Kiev does succumb to Russian forces, then we can expect the move to progress to uh, to the West and possibly for a final seizure of the country within um, a, a couple of months. So I think, unfortunately, the, the, the Russian invasion has not stalled, nor, nor has Russia been severely impacted by the sanctions. Yeah, that's very interesting that you say that. I actually heard a guy on Hidden Forces, if you know that podcast, and they had a military guy on, and he was basically saying a very similar thing, that in fact, it's not going as badly as the Western media is putting it. So it's interesting that you put it that way. Now, in terms of just the overall motivation for Putin, and before we, we're obviously going to get to commodities here, but to your point about the Western media, he's being portrayed as a madman. He's trying to reconstitute the USSR, like this sort of thing. Do you think that's true? Like, do you think he, you know, since you called it almost a year ago, does this stop at Ukraine? First of all, in terms of the madman narrative, I, I, I think that's to be expected anytime there's there's a war. And anytime that somebody, anytime that the West wants to sort of vilify an enemy, they, they tend to take that line and vice versa. So I, I think that's to be expected. Has he gone man? No, I, I really don't think that's even uh, a, po a possibility. Actually, he's, he's for the most part, quite a calculating leader. I think that the invasion of, 
of the Ukraine is, is horrendous and I, I absolutely condemn it, but I don't think it's coming from a, a place of you know, insanity. In terms of it being inevitable or part of a, a greater scheme to reconstitute the Soviet Union, uh, certainly there, there has been a long-standing move on the part of Putin to consolidate control over Russian-speaking areas. I don't think that that's going to translate into, you know, reestablishing Warsaw Pact or going into Eastern Europe, uh, if nothing else, because there's just so much hostility to Russia there. I mean, if you, you talk to people from Poland or from the Baltic states, there's no love lost there for Russia. However, I mean, I, I, I think it stands to reason that Russia is trying to establish a buffer state in the Ukraine to create distance between themselves and the NATO countries. I think that the United States has done similar things before. I think that, you know, if, for example, if, if Canada started to fall under the, uh, under Chinese influence, if, if China staged a coup in Ottawa, or if Canada joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, I think we could expect a similar sort of response from the U.S. So I think Russia is is acting like a big power. They haven't been treated like a big power because for a long time after the breakup of the Soviet Union, it, it wasn't a big power. It was a crippled country. But Russia is back in play and they're acting like it. So in that respect, just finally, before we kind of move on to actual resources here, do you think that the president of Ukraine in some respects where he was calling for NATO repeatedly and even still after the invasion began joining NATO, joining the EU, do you think in some respects he was naive? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I think that, I think he was probably listening to a certain side of the, the Western and, and American political establishment. Uh, there are a lot of think tanks and former policymakers out there that have these types of views about the Ukraine eventually joining the Western sphere, about joining the EU, about joining NATO, and I think he was listening to that side of the discussion. Uh, in that sense, I think he was naive, you know, and, and I said before that there's already the likelihood of that government going into exile, which sort of obviates the the naivety of that. So in short form, yes, I think the government was very naive in, in underestimating Russia. With that then, as we look at the bigger picture here, so sanctions have been put on Russia. Where are we in terms of the resources here? People talk about the, the big one that I think that, you know, some people have pointed to, but it's delayed is this grain issue. You know, apparently there's some important metals for semiconductors. I don't know if they call it pink neon or something, but maybe you know something about that. Where are we on the resources front? Russia is a major commodity producer. You have Ukraine, you know, what is going on from your perspective on the resource front? Well, first of all, Russia went into this almost sanctions proof out of any advanced economy. Russia is is the one that I would say is the most well positioned to withstand sanctions. That's first of all, a legacy of the Soviet economy, which was geared towards self-sufficiency. Secondly, it's, it's because Russia has resisted the borrowing and low interest rate type binges that have occurred in the West. It's, it's gone into this crisis almost debt-free. 
the private sector is also very low U.S. denominated debt. And more than anything, they, their economy is grounded in sectors that, that are booming right now, commodities, base metals, oil and gas. So it's extremely difficult to cut off an economy like that and to punish an economy like that. And, and Putin knows that. I mean, he understands the way that the international market works. And I think it helps explain why these sanctions really have not had much of an effect on the Russian position vis-a-vis -vis the Ukraine. It's not had an effect on their advance. And why I think, if anything, the, the Russians are more worried about foreign companies snapping up their blue chip stocks right now, which are they're a fraction of their value before. And they're not, these aren't, you know, high flying Silicon Valley stocks with nothing underneath them. These are serious companies with, with assets and oil and a lot under underpinning them. And I, I could see that, that companies from China, from uh, even Thailand, Southeast Asia would be probably flocking to take positions in these. So I'm sure the Russian government is probably attempting to fend that off, perhaps even nationalize some parts of these companies. You know, that is a really interesting point because you hear the narrative about the Russian stock market and you think, well, he's doing that because he doesn't want it to crash and everybody to, you know, his own public to basically be really mad that their stock market crashed and he's just trying to save the stock market. But what you're saying is un underneath all that, he doesn't want, you know, I, I've heard Russia described as kind of not necessarily a wealthy nation like the U.S., but a rich nation in terms of its resources. And what you're saying is ultimately he doesn't want people to come in and buy up all those companies on the cheap with, a, you know, crashed 98% down stock market. Absolutely. I mean, if they, if the Russian economy was based on, I don't know, mangoes or something that that is highly elastic in price and not in a lot of demand in the West, they would be in a bad position. But as we discussed on our last meeting in, in August, September, these are commodities where there's chronic shortages in the West. I don't include oil in that, by the way, but oil and gas, but I do certainly include the base metals side of it and the uh, rare earths metals as well. In terms of agricultural commodities, that's going to drive the prices of those up, um, certainly on the short term. But Russia is in, a, is in a very good position to find its way ar around these, these sanctions and around these restrictions. And by the way, most of the economy is, is not going to be covered by these. And as I say, Asian buyers and, and mid-tier companies that are not involved in the U.S. market will have will probably be seeing a lot of opportunities arising right now on the buy side. With that mention of Asia, how does China fit into all this from your perspective, especially from the commodities side? It, it seems to me that they have less competition when they're buying commodities from Russia. Again, they had that I don't know, that endless friendship quote or whatever from a month ago. It seems like this is, you know, great news for China on a purely pragmatic front that, you know, Russia, I mean, it has so many, it's such a massive country, so rich in commodities, and that's what China needs. Uh, how do you read it? Well, I, I think the Chinese see it as a situation where there are pluses and there are minuses. 
the Chinese government loves to break these things down into percentages. So I, I would say probably from their perspective, it would be about 70% negative and about 30% positive, maybe 60, 40, I don't know. But either way, I think from their perspective, the negatives would probably outweigh the positives. First of all, for one of the reasons you, you raise, which is commodities. I mean, the PRC is a very commodities dependent economy. Uh, they don't produce a lot of them themselves. So this is driving up their cost of oil. It's driving up their cost of, of base metals. And that side of it, I think they're, they're unhappy about. Uh, they're also unhappy about the fact that it's rallying the West uh, around a, a common enemy, which China doesn't like either because they, they see that possibly transferring to Taiwan. And uh, I, just overall, the PRC doesn't like instability. Uh, they like predictability. They like a geopolitical environment that facilitates their, their economy, which this doesn't, doesn't do. On the positive side, I think that, that it does, it will heighten divisions on the long term in the West. I don't think this consensus in the EU will hold, and I think they're pleased with that. I think that they're also examining opportunities to make a move on Taiwan. I don't think that's a certainty right now, but that's certainly uh, something they're looking at. And it's also making Russia more dependent on its relationship with, with the PRC, which they like, and also creating more alternatives to to the West. The, the PRC is stepping in into areas that the West once dominated, like for example, with credit cards. Um, there was a lot of uh, fanfare around how Visa and MasterCard had pulled out of Russia and that this was going to be very damaging. Uh, what's actually happened recently as well though, is that the Chinese credit card supplier UnionPay has stepped into the fold and is now taking on those clients. There's also efforts by the PRC to further along the sort of de-dollarization internationally and to form uh, alternatives to the kind of Western liberal order that had that was previously in place. So overall, they, I would say that the negatives probably outweigh the positives, but that's not to say that there aren't certain positives that the Chinese will be capitalizing on. Yeah, and it seems like... You know, if, say, the Chinese, uh, let's say they do want to disrupt the, you know, liberal order, it seems like it, the Russians are doing their dirty work for them to a certain degree in terms of if they want to upset the power relations a little bit. Like you say, they like the, the stability generally, but if it is going to get changed at a certain point, it's going to get uh, destabilized. And it seems... As some people say, you know, this is a trial run for Taiwan, and now they can see what happens. Any sort of other thoughts on that? Yes, it, it is a, a trial run for Taiwan. And another warning shot it does deliver is that the U.S. in a political crisis like this is willing to basically pull your U.S. dollars, to put it a little bit too bluntly. But uh, in terms of freezing U.S. dollar assets, which is a huge precedent. It, it basically politicizes the U.S. dollar. And I think the Chinese are watching that closely and thinking if there was ever, if we were ever put in a similar position, we had better reduce our exposure to the U.S. dollar. So I think it's going to further those, 
those things along, and it's going to cause the Chinese and the Russians to start to form alternative structures that are, are completely insulated from, from American and European influence. Yeah, that was definitely one of the most concerning things. Like, you can understand the rationale that a lot of the Western politicians had for cutting off, say, Russia from its money, but I mean, it's kind of like one of the inviolable things of the Western system is property rights, right? And, you know, like, so it, to your point, like that seems like a tectonic shift, particularly in the story of de-dollarization, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And um, it's going to further along a process that, that was inching along um, prior to this invasion, I think think that we've we 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 no longer live in a unipolar world where the U.S. is able to decide wh which countries uh, invade other countries and currency used and not used, and are essentially able to decide the fate of global politics. We now have a situation where Russia and potentially China are able to act like the United States has acted in the past, and I don't think there's there's really much that the U.S. can do besides um, direct military conflict, which they're not going to do. So from the Chinese perspective, that is that is sort of an affirmation of, I think, what they believe for some time. So back to the commodities, I mean, and this, like, I, I would like to touch on, I don't know if you know anything too specific about them. I mean, we hear about this food crisis that's kind of on the horizon uh, as a result yeah. of, you know, Ukraine and Russia. I, I've heard it said that, you know, a third of the world's wheat is exported out of Ukraine and Russia put together. What are your thoughts on this whole situation with food? Well, food food is going to be going to be impacted for sure um, in, in the medium term for the reasons that you state. On the longer term, I, I don't think it's going to be possible to cut off Russia from exporting any of these commodities. Money has a way of finding its way way into countries that are under sanctions, and especially a country of uh, Russia's stature. But to engage directly with what you're saying, yes, wheat will absolutely be impacted. But I think within a year or so, it will be able to be, how can I say, replaced by, by crops in other countries. And eventually, the supply there in Russia and the Ukraine will come back online. But we will see spikes in certain commodity prices. We're already seeing them. I mean, that squeeze on the, on the London Commodities exchange um, is is an example of that as well that we saw around nickel. So uh, the commodities market will will be affected. I don't think it will. I think though it's more of a, a, an extension and a a heightening of, of a trend that's already been in place before 2019, and that I think we discussed last time, which long term shortages that have developed around metals and commodities. Yeah, it's almost like this was kind of waiting in the wings for a while, these shortages. I mean, I don't know if you know that book by Stephen Lieb back in 2010, Red Alert. And I mean, he was 10 years too early. But these shortages, I mean, if you read that book, they have been just like waiting to happen. And a lot of people were talking about it. And now we got like this perfect storm. So a bad situation was made even worse. And now on that point, what metals are you looking at? I mean, we saw that huge move in nickel and like that crazy situation on the LME. Again, the West breaking its, you know, principles here. What metals are you looking at or are you looking at any? 
Well, all of them. And the, the reason the reason is because, see, with metals, you, you can't really substitute out of metals. You can substitute within them. For example, with electrical materials, if copper prices go too high, you can substitute copper for, for lower quality aluminium. But you're just switching between the metal space. So you, for, for most applications, you, you can't get out of, out of metals because, uh, and as a consequence, when the price of one rises, the price of another will follow due to substitution. You know, you can't build a car out of wood or corn. So I think that all of the metals are going to go up to varying degrees. I mean, obviously, nickel is, is, an, is going to be an extreme example. Copper is going to be an extreme example probably iron to a little bit of a lesser degree because it's just more widely available and cheaper to extract. Zinc is another one to to look at. You know, there there may be some cooling off from the the current highs, but overall I I don't see any scenario for the next 2 to 3 years where we could have a a, a moderation in metals prices. We're basically coming out of a situation where between 2011 and 2020, we had no real exploration occurring in the sector. And in fact, I would pull that back to 2009 to 2020. There's just really no exploration in the sector. And even right now, the exploration sector is is minuscule compared to what it should be. So you can imagine if, uh, you know, if, if in the technology space, what, what would the technology space look like if there'd been no R&D between, uh, you know, 2009 and 2020, we'd still be using, you know, Windows 8 or whatever it was. So these shortages are inevitable given the amount of time that it takes to put a mine into uh, production, which is about five to 10 years. And I just don't see any way barring an economic crisis, which I don't expect for another two to three years. I don't see any way that those shortages can be mitigated. And kind of you know, circling back to our sanctions question, as we kind of wrap up with a couple more questions here, how serious is this? Like, what are the implications of all these shortages and these huge sanctions that we've put on Russia? What's the fallout here in your view, as far as like, how bad can this get? You know, uh, these sanctions, will they hurt us in the end? Uh, just some thoughts on that. Yes. I mean, I uh, so I've I worked a lot on sanctions, actually, when Myanmar uh, after the reforms in 2014. So obviously a much different case, but I, I did learn a lot about, about the way that sanctions work during that time. For one thing, a lot of the companies that you're seeing pull out of Russia right now, like I saw CNN broadcast a big picture of all the brand logos of these companies pulling out. Um, a lot of those actually are not related to sanctions. That's more because of uh, reputational risk or political risk or, you know, difficulty of doing business. Um, the second thing is that those the, the departure of those Western brands actually could have a positive effect on the Russian economy because once sanctions are in place, the concern of the targeted government becomes preventing foreign currency flight. So those departures could have actually a benefit. In terms of the specificity of what's happened right now, the sanctions are being put in place by OFAC under the Treasury Department, the Office of Foreign Asset Control. Those deal with some, some of the large tycoons and the large corporate players in the Russian economy. 
quite similar to how the Treasury Department dealt with Myanmar. So what that tends to do is it prevents mainstream international companies from the West and from Japan from, from doing business in the country and obviously with those, with those entities. If you're, for example, a large Japanese conglomerate and you have operations in the U.S., you don't want to be doing business with those companies. Obviously, sanctions only apply to U.S. companies, but they can use those to prosecute foreigners and foreign companies if they engage with sanctioned entities. So large players that, that are uh, the Mitsubishis of the world, the um, Ford and whatnot, that will chase those companies off, but it certainly will not prevent mid-tier or even larger companies from China, from Thailand, from Malaysia, from engaging with those companies. And overall, I think that the restrictions on the Russian foreign reserves are very interesting. And I think that is probably the move that's going to have the biggest effect. Having said that, Russia has made a lot of successes in uh, de-dollarizing its economy, and it is not exposed to U.S.-denominated foreign debt in the same way that countries that have experienced currency downturns as Russia has are. So I think that probably as Russia consolidates its grip on the Ukraine, you're probably going to see a lot of money going back into the Russian economy and probably a, a recovery in, in some of these sectors and uh, of certain areas of the economy and even of the Russian ruble as a whole. So I, I don't see this I don't see this collapsing the Russian economy. I mean, as, as a side note, I mean, I wish I could have a dollar for every time the West has predicted the imminent downfall of the Venezuelan government. I mean, right after the Myanmar coup last year, I wrote an article in The Diplomat about how we could expect that the Western media would be saying that the uh, Myanmar junta would be collapsing imminently, which they did say. And I, I wrote at the time that they will be going nowhere that they are going to stay in power, unfortunately. And I would say that as well for, for the Russian case. I don't think that this invasion is going anywhere and I don't think Putin is going anywhere. My final question for you then, or final topic, is unfortunately, as I listen to this interview, frankly, it doesn't seem so bad for Russia. It seems like, you know, if I was to infer a lot of what you're saying, it's like they've been preparing for this moment for a while. The Western media is way overplaying the failures that they're having, their economy should recover, <laughs> you know, that it's not going to collapse. As we zoom out, it doesn't sound so bad for Russia. And so how do you see this playing out? I don't know, nobody has a crystal ball here, but do you see a new order of sorts? Like, how do you see this playing out, if at all? I see them basically occupying the uh, occupying Ukraine, the let's say the western part of it. When I say the western part of it, I mean excluding the two eastern provinces, which Russia has now deemed to be uh, people's republics. They'll occupy the entirety of, of the country, and then some sort of a deal will be made, probably involving neutrality of uh, Ukraine, um, some sort of you know, pro-Russian government or some sort of Russian participation in, in the political system there. And then once that's settled, you'll probably see 
a pullout of Russian troops from the Ukraine, um, with the exception of those the, the two Eastern republics. And then obviously with with any settlement of that type, there'll be unpublished clauses in the agreement, which we won't know about at the time. But it, there will be a status quo that will be set. And the West will unfortunately have to fall in line with that. I mean, they're, uh, they, they either accept the unfortunate reality of what Russia has done in the Ukraine, or they increasingly see Russia fall into a non-Western orbit and, and for them to become increasingly alienated. So I, I think that, that th those things that I described will probably take place within the next few months. Okay, and final, final question, getting to this cause issue. Like some people think the NATO moving up to their borders was a, simply a pretext. You seem to be suggesting it's a cause, but help me out here. I mean, I sort of saw it as a somewhat of a cause. I'm not an expert in these things at all. Do you think that was the cause of this? Or do you think, you know, was that just a convenient reason? Is it more complicated than that? I don't really see it as a pretext, first of all, because they haven't used it as a pretext. If you look at the rhetoric coming from Putin and coming from the Russian media, the pretext they've used, which I think is completely bizarre, is, is that there's, uh, you know, right-wing neo-Nazis dominating Ukraine, which is which is completely bizarre, especially seeing as how the uh, the president is Jewish. So that's their pretext. Is it a reality though? Yes, it, it absolutely it figured into their into their reasoning for for going going into Ukraine. Just as I think that uh, well, just as the, the United States contemplated invading Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, unfortunately didn't go ahead with that. I, I don't think that the 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 Russians really. Uh, like to, they, they didn't use this as a pretext though, because I, I, I don't think they like to admit the genuine strategic threat that NATO does pose to, to Russia. And I think if, if anything, they're trying to downplay that rather than, than use it as a pretext. The reality is that from the Russian perspective, they're surrounded on, on all sides by unfriendly alliances and unfriendly states. In the West, it's NATO and in the middle, got uh, Turkey, and then uh, you had Afghanistan, which was U.S. occupied, not anymore. And then in the east, you have uh, Japan, which is pro-U.S. You have South Korea, which is pro-U.S., both of which have U.S. bases uh, stationed in them. So from their perspective, the map doesn't look very good for them. And so going into the Ukraine was, as I say, a way of taking that country out of the Western sphere and possibly, as I say, they would they would settle for some kind of neutrality, which, you know, in in my opinion, maybe would have been the best move to begin with from the Ukrainian side if they went down the the road of say uh, Finland or or Austria, which would have been opting for for neutrality rather than overplaying their hands, so to speak, and uh, trying to get into the Western orbit. George McLeod, managing partner, Access Mining. Thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Hope to speak soon.
I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Special thanks again to George McLeod, and we will have him on maybe in three months or so, get an update. As conditions require in these truly historic times. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.